if you see the decision-making process of a European Union. We must speed up our process. In a digital revolution, we are not fast enough, not at all. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor, and you just heard from our feature guest this week, Gunter Oettinger, the EU's outgoing budget commissioner. The German's been in Brussels for nearly a decade and he isn't leaving without sharing a few frank thoughts about the future of the European Union. We'll bring you that interview in a bit, but first we have a panel of our esteemed reporters. You can tell I didn't write that part of the script. Uh, lined up to talk through the big stories in European politics this week. We have Annabel Dixon in London. Welcome back, Annabel. Hello. And we have Matt Karnichnik in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Annabel. Hi, Carmen. Yeah, and uh, preempting as ever, Matt, uh, we have uh, right uh, next to me here in Brussels, Carmen Pound, our uh, health reporter and one of our in-house Romania experts. Hi, Carmen. Hello. Okay, so let's get cracking. And I thought, uh, particularly as we have Carmen here, uh, we might start with news here in Brussels today. I've been waiting a while for uh, nominee to be the European Commissioner from Romania. We got two at once this afternoon, and by the end of the afternoon, it looks like we only have one. Carmen, who is it and what should we know about her? It's Adina Valen. She's a member of the European People's Party. Um, in Romania, she's a member of the National Liberals Party, uh, who just took over government a few days ago. Um, she's probably one of the longest serving Romanian MEPs, if not the longest serving one. She actually joined the parliament as an observer in 2006, even before Romania became a member of the EU and then stayed on as MEP since 2007 until now. And she's also chaired two committees, um, the European Parliament's Committee on uh, Environment, Public Health and Food Safety, which is also one of the most powerful ones, and now the Industry Research and Energy one. So uh, quite an experienced MEP, 51 year old and a woman. So probably a lot of what Ursula von der Leyen was looking for. Okay, so this is obviously the bigger picture here is that uh, we needed all of these replacement nominees from the three countries whose nominees were originally rejected, France, Hungary and Romania. The Romanian, if you like, was the last piece of the puzzle. So now we go again in the European Parliament and the Commission, which has already been delayed, now is going to try and get into office for the beginning of December. But there is actually still one missing piece, Annabelle, and that is a UK Commissioner. We learned today that Ursula von der Leyen has written to Boris Johnson asking him to nominate someone. What is the response from Downing Street? The answer is answer pending. Um, it's not something that they particularly want to engage with on the first day of the election campaign. It's the first official day when Boris Johnson is going to try and win that so far elusive majority for the Conservatives. But during an election campaign, it's not something that he particularly wants to be talking about. Um, it, it would be very symbolic of his failure to deliver on his promise to get Brexit done if he started talking about who he was going to send to Europe. Yeah, and the idea seems to be that uh, he, uh, Ursula von der Leyen rather, has asked for a female commissioner from, uh, from the UK as well. So, Annabelle, are you, are you available? <laughs> well, I'm always ready to serve, of course. <laughs> right, well, unfortunately. Would, would, would probably... you get lifetime benefits with that? Uh... 
I believe I mean, you would. It's been the issue in the past. Is that's with, right. Uh, yeah. Well, hopefully, Politico will start a bidding war, and um, I'll end up with a great package that I can. <laughs> say I think I know who would win that bidding war. <laughs> I have to tell you, a couple of months at the commission is probably a a, a better deal. Uh, Matt, how are people viewing this um, kind of hiatus at the moment here in Brussels? There's, you know, there's a caretaker commission. In the meantime, Emmanuel Macron has been running around. Um, as the president of Europe, in some ways in China, are people, you know, in the government circles uh, relaxed about this delay, or are they keen to get a new commission in sooner rather than later? Well, I think to be honest, they're keen to get a commission in sooner rather than later. That said, they've been quite preoccupied with everything that's been happening in Germany in recent weeks within the the Grand Coalition, and uh, in, in particular with the leadership race and the Social Democratic Party and so forth. So. You know, I think I think people who deal with this stuff are keen to kind of get things moving because they see the deadline for the German presidency fast approaching in July of, of next year when it's uh, scheduled to begin. OK, and just mentioning that uh, Emmanuel Macron has, has been in China, I should say that that's why Reem's not with us uh, this week. She has been following him around uh, China, but will be back with us next week. So just continuing, Carmen, with that idea of this hiatus at the moment in Brussels, the, the place in limbo with uh, with the new commission not yet in office. How's that affecting the, the policy area that you cover most, health policy? I think everyone is in waiting mode right now. That There's one particular piece of legislation that is stuck in the council. It's on something called health technology assessment. So it pretty much means that countries would come together to evaluate the added value of new medicines and medical devices. It's um, a particularly challenging proposal from the commission that big countries like Germany and France are not fan of, to say the least. It's been stuck there for almost two years now, and everyone is waiting to see what the next commission will do, whether they'll decide to change the proposal, withdraw it altogether, or really push through with it. Mm. But in ju- and just in terms of what would you normally be covering on a day-to-day basis? You have a, a daily newsletter. I mean, is there enough? I mean, I'm sure we always find enough material, enough stories, but is that more of a struggle at the moment? Are officials as talkative? How different is what they are doing day-to-day at the moment from what they would be doing in a kind of fully active commission? I feel not so much has changed from a year ago. It might also be due to the fact that health largely is a member state's competence. Um, So a lot of the discussions are still happening in in the capitals rather than in Brussels. Uh, The only thing that happens quite often, and it can be quite frustrating for a journalist, is that you would get commission officials, so not the politicians, but people that will continue to be there once the new commission is in place, who always have the caveat of, we cannot tell you what the new commission is going to do. These are our ideas or what we're working on, but it really depends on what the political leadership of the commission, of the incoming commission, will want to do. Um, so that's where it it's in limbo and everyone is wondering whether, you know, whether there will be a complete change of, of, of paradigm or whether things will just continue the same way with the new commission. Okay, let's move on to those elections in the UK. Uh, Annabelle, you've been looking at the the digital side of campaigning, what have you learned and what should we be aware of as the as the campaign gets into gear? Yeah, that's right. This is a big theme of this election campaign and it's been a controversy in the UK really for three and a half years or more, but it really sort of kicked into life after the EU referendum. There were lots of concerns about the use of data, spending limits, sort of lack of transparency, disinformation, Russian influence, abuse of candidates, all these sort of themes have emerged. 
that there's still this sense that um, sophisticated digital political tactics aren't really properly regulated or transparent. But with this election coming as it is, there hasn't been a chance for Parliament to actually legislate for any of this. So it's very much the status quo going into this election, despite all of these reports that we've had over the last few years. And what are the big holes that people kind of identify? Like if they'd had more time, what would have been the kind of holes they were looking to patch or the things they were, they would have changed? The Information Commissioner who regulates data, she's been very concerned about the use of data in politics and she's done various reports and, and she wants there to be sort of stricter rules around that and also around sort of transparency on social media platforms. The, the other big thing that's sort of blown up this week has been the issue of Russian interference. This is something that ministers have always said, that there's no examples of successful Russian interference in UK elections. But there was an an Intelligence and Security Committee report that was due out this week, which was looking into the claims that Kremlin tried to influence the outcome of the EU referendum, as, as well as looking at last year's or 2017 general election and there's been a big row in the UK because the UK government said it's not going to publish this report um, before the election. Mm. Carmen, uh, how are you following the, the UK election? I believe you have family in the UK, right? And how do, what about policymakers, people you talk to here in Brussels, are they following it? I do still have family in the UK. They're still there and they don't seem to be very concerned um, about what's going to happen. There was a bit of a dem- of a question at some point whether they should register for pre-settled status because they haven't been there long enough or whether they should wait for 2020. Um, I think everyone is waiting to see what here in Brussels, what way this will go because there's been so much debate about what actually people want from Brexit now that they see uh, much more what this entails and all the policies and all the complication of trade and, and anything else affecting um, daily life, including medicine supply, for example, which is something that we reported on quite a lot. So everyone is waiting to see whether people will change their mind um, in the way they vote uh, or whether they would really just want to get Brexit done, just like Boris Johnson. I think they really just want to get Brexit done. At least that's <laughs> what I want. No <laughs> second referendum. It's like pulling a Band-Aid. Yeah, okay, just get it off and get on with it? Yeah, yeah, Okay. got to move on. Do you think that's, but do you think that's a widely shared view in Berlin? Are there still some secret remainers hoping that somehow this won't happen? Uh, well, I wouldn't say that my views in general are representative of people in Berlin, but I do think on, on this question, there is a, a lot of fatigue. And I, I don't think that many people, even though they would have wanted the UK to remain uh, to begin with. I don't think that many people think that a second referendum would produce a different result and that even if it did, that would bring, you know, it would be so close again probably that it would just kind of start the whole chaos again. So uh, I, I, I think at this stage the thinking is it's best to just move on, let them move out in an orderly fashion and try to make the best of a bad situation. That said, it is having a pretty dramatic impact on the German economy, maybe much even more impact than, than people uh, realize. OK, let's stay with uh, Germany. You've got Mike Pompeo in town in, in Berlin. What should we, I mean, obviously we're recording on Wednesday late afternoon. And by the time some people hear this, you know, the visit will have played out. But what do you think are the, the expectations or hopes on the US and on the, on the German side here? 
Well, he's coming at a, at a very tense time in transatlantic relations, obviously. Nonetheless, he's here to celebrate the fall of the wall. He himself served as a soldier during the Cold War on the uh, German border with the West German border with East Germany, and he's going to a small town on the border of Bavaria with uh, Thuringia, my favorite place in Germany, and we'll be holding various various events. So I think there'll be kind of a lot of you know feel-good moments baked in here. At the same time, he'll be unveiling a statue on the deck of the, the U.S. Embassy in central Berlin of uh, Ronald Reagan. That deck overlooks the Brandenburg Gate, and the statue had to be put there because uh, the Berliners uh, decided not to build one of their own, which is Again, another another sign or an, uh, just another uh, sort of hint of some of the tensions that have existed here between uh, the Trump administration and the German government recently. You also had an incident earlier this week where the German foreign minister, Heiko Maas, wrote an op-ed that appeared, I think, in dozens of, of newspapers. You know, the theme was uh, the, the fall of the wall and how, how thankful Germany was to various countries. And uh, he managed to write this piece without mentioning the United States by name. So there's a lot of uh, bad blood at the moment. So it'll be very interesting to see how how Pompeo, who is known to be very blunt, will will navigate these waters. Okay, thanks. That brings us to the the anniversary of the fall of the the Berlin Wall this week. Carmen, how's that being talked about or discussed in in Romania? Is that is that a big moment? It's obviously there's a lot of commemorations in Germany. You know, how are people reflecting on that moment in Romania? They're not reflecting as much. Um, we usually do this uh, in December when we uh, commemorate the Romanian Revolution. So I think most of the discussion and the, the debate and the reflection will happen then. I've seen uh, maybe a few stories about what has changed and whether the West or the East failed in what happened after, but not so much public debate about it also because their presidential elections this Sunday, so people are focusing a lot on those. Right. Annabelle, is any of the, the wall, the you know, the 30th anniversary stuff, penetrating into into Brexit-obsessed or um, election-obsessed UK? It's certainly in evidence on the, on the sort of feature pages, but certainly not on, on the front pages of, of the British press. Um, as an aside, my sister was born as the Berlin Wall came down, which just sort of shows what... It's a generation ago that it, that it happened. Well, so was I. <laughs> sure. Reborn, Still recovering from reborn, her birthday celebration. <laughs> yeah, well, this is it. Thanks for making us all feel old, Annabelle. Uh, and <laughs> My younger sister, much younger sister. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't know if that helps. Okay, I think we'll, uh, we'll leave it there for this week. Matt, Annabelle, Carbon, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank thanks you. Thanks a lot. Bye. And now let's get to our feature interview this week with Gunter Oettinger, the outgoing budget commissioner. He sat down with our own Hans von der Burchardt earlier this week. The straight-talking German has been a commissioner in Brussels for nearly a decade, so we wanted to catch up with him before he left and get his parting thoughts on Brussels, the budget and some of the political dynamics back home. Let's hear some highlights of that conversation. I would be interested to know, looking back at your career in Brussels, serving as a commissioner for nearly a decade, what do you consider your greatest achievement? We achieved, I think, to stabilize our EU. If you see February 2010, when the Barroso II Commission started, a few weeks afterwards, Greece. And no trust and confidence coming from the, the markets, 
afterwards Ireland, Portugal, Cyprus, Spanish banks. And in 2011 and 12, many market players have been foreseeing that the eurozone will fail, that the euro, the currency will fail, and that our EU as a whole will be massively damaged. We had problems indeed, but at the end of this decade, the European Union is more stable than the EU has been at the beginning of this decade. So if we then look at the other side of the medal, um, what would you consider your biggest mistake or regret? Mm. What we need is an even stronger European Union. And I think sometimes we are too cautious, too defensive. No doubt just to defend the state of play is important. But if you see the dynamic and global development in technology and innovation, in the global economy, if you see what autocrats are doing. So I think now we have to speak about the future of Europe, about a much stronger European Union with a lot of additional competencies. And me, it's not up to me to speak about my mistakes, it's up to you to analyze my mistakes. Um, no doubt, after 10 years in the Commission, you might have some success stories, but you have to accept that this or that was not the right strategy, it was a mistake, was a wrong speech or whatever else. Can you, can you name one event? Particularly, which you would, we would say, I would have retrospectively, I would have done it differently. My Hamburg speech was not really, um, but some sentences inside mm. are not acceptable. Going over to a different topic, you are known to be very active in Brussels, but also in Germany. Uh, people I spoke to told me uh, you would receive parliamentary groups or uh, business associations here as visitors during the working day, then in the evening you would go to maybe uh, two or even three events in the evening and have a working dinner on top, so you're described as a very active commissioner. How do you think this role can be filled once you leave? Will it be done by uh, Ursula von der Leyen or will it be up to others to fill this role? My understanding was whenever there is coming anybody from Germany. I should be ready and able to meet him or her or them. And Martin Schulz um, in 2012 said to me, you, Oettinger, and me, Schulz, are the most prominent Germans in Brussels or Strasbourg. So he and me, our thing was to be present if anybody wants to meet us. Hmm. And I'm sure that President-elect von der Leyen from time to time is willing to meet German groups. Maybe not so often as I could do, but from time to time she will do. And in addition, we have members in the parliament. We have high-level officials inside the commission. Do you think that the German community here in Brussels, um, or in general German interest in Brussels, could they lose influence? Because that's what I hear sometimes, that the Germans here fear that they will lose influence in EU politics. I think since decades, 
there are comments that Germany has too much power. At the same time, Germany is losing power. It's always the same uh, game. No thing, we have a stable number and qualification of the representatives representing German interests inside all institutions. My main question is, what will happen if there is a new German government? May it be in September 2021 or may it be earlier? Because no doubt, if you see the last, meanwhile, 14 years of a German Chancellor Angela Merkel, assisted and supported by Wolfgang Schäuble, by Sigmar Gabriel, by Olaf Scholz. So I think the influence of the German government and the German Chancellor is really impressive. And there is a concern that this level of authority and influence may be not guaranteed on the way to and after a new government comes into the operative uh, situation. So you would say that a lot of this German influence is bound to the person Angela Merkel and if she goes out of cover a government. Yes, I think so. And in addition, if you see last 10, 12 years, the German economic development was impressive. And if there would be a special problem for German industries, and if Germany would come into a recession, as it seems to be now in autumn 2019, and in parallel the Grand Coalition would be weaker and weaker, or we have extraordinary elections, then the German influence could come into some problems. In your current position as budget commissioner, how would you say you have handled the budget negotiations in times where Berlin's position has been very different from the commission's? I wouldn't say very different. Different, yes. But Germany has, in reality, two priorities. First one, rule of law conditionality. Second one, modernization. And if you see these three main pillars, the first pillar is CAP, our common agricultural policy. Second is cohesion, with several programs. And third is the addition of all programs which are new or which play an increasing role. Take Digital Europe, take Horizon Europe, take Neighborhood in the World, take Migration. These programs together have a bigger relevance than CAP or Cohesion have or will have. Looking to the future, how do you think Germany should compromise on the budget? So you're saying maybe the, 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 the underlying ideas are not so different, but when it comes to the numbers, there's still quite a difference. Where do you think Berlin could realistically move closer to the commissions, to your demands or expectations? It's a poker game. And 1% is a starting point. Maybe looking to the future, you've established your own consultancy in uh, back in Germany. So some people are going to criticize this as um, this move as an example of a revolving door, where you are potentially able to cash in on your own political experience for private gain. 
How do you respond to this criticism? I don't agree. I've been a tax lawyer before I came to politics and I want to go back as a lawyer and I know my obligations, my ethical obligations, I know all of them. And for the moment there's no activity, not at all. It's just a preparatory step. I am a shareholder, nothing else. I am preparing my next future uh, in the private sector and this consulting company is a part of it. If we look at the future of the EU, what is, if you can name one key thing that needs to change to further make the EU resilient against all those challenges that you've also described? If you see the decision-making process of a European Union, from a study, internal, external study, to a consultation, internal, external consultation, to a broad discussion in several institutions and in our media and our public sphere, then a communication of the Commission, and then a legislative proposal, and then council and parliament and trialogue and blah, 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 blah. we must speed up our process. In a digital revolution, we are not fast enough, not at all. We have to come to legislative, political, technical decisions earlier, much faster as we are coming to a decision today. And how could it be done, for example? By more council meetings. If a minister may it be environmental, economic, financial, is coming one time a month for half a day to Brussels. Or next time his state secretary, second next time new minister. There is no continuity and not enough speed. Uh, we should ask for more working days of all members in all institutions inside the European capital. So, I mean, ministers from capitals coming more regularly to, to yes. Brussels. Yes. One criticism that uh, we sometimes hear is that even though ministers come to Brussels, sometimes they are lacking a clear position at home or a clear decision on what, what they should vote on, how they should decide. Uh, a couple of persons described to me uh, that there is the synonym of I'm taking the German vote, which is to uh, abstain. <laughs> I see you're smiling, so, so you're maybe uh, familiar with that one. So do you think capitals at home, and especially your home country, Germany, also needs to speed up decision-making and having a clearer line on European politics to make this possible? Yeah, a part of the whole system, why we come to a decision so late, is that council meetings often are bringing no progress because the minister has no mandate, has no clear position, is defensive or is neutral. I think all governments having their weekly college should have one point, European agenda. Before to speak, week by week in Paris, Berlin, Rome, Warsaw, what is happening in Brussels, Luxembourg, Strasbourg, and what should be our preferred solution, what is our position. And then a minister would have a mandate, being backed by the whole government, even by a difficult coalition. Um, and indeed, the German vote often is coming too late. I have seen so many council meetings in which a 
ambassador to Brussels or a state secretary or a minister couldn't take the floor or could intervene substantially because he had no full backing of his uh, coalition partners. Is this also something that you convened directly to Angela Merkel? I mentioned it several times in Berlin, yes, uh, even to her, to ministers uh, or inside the board of my CDU. It's not just a German problem, but indeed the biggest member state should have a position. Just um, on your role here in Brussels, how long do you think you will still be in office? Will you be already be able to go to the Christmas market? The best case scenario is we can leave 30th of November. And a worst case scenario would be end of January. If you are looking back, when I started here, originally our first working day was the 1st of November 2009, as it should have been this year again. In reality, it was the 10th of February 2010, so a delay of three and a half months. I don't hope that this will be the blueprint for the start of the Federal Commission. That was Gunter Oettinger, the outgoing Budget Commissioner, speaking with Politico's Hans von der Burchardt. And that's all we have time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on your favourite listening device and send us feedback at podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Special thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez, and thanks to you for listening. 